Hello and welcome to the ASB Investment Podcast, a show that keeps you up to date on the markets and helps you make smart choices with your investments. These are entirely our own views and that of our guests. It's not investment advice, but we know plenty of experts at ASB that'll be happy to chat if you need. Joining me today is Ben Powell. Ben's BlackRock's Asia-Pacific Chief Investment Strategist. And he's been a guest on this podcast several times in the past when we've wanted to talk about some of the global issues that are troubling investment markets. Today really is an update on issues that we've been talking about earlier on in the year and investors have been fretting about for quite a while now. Between inflation, central banks hiking interest rates, share markets slumping, the conflict in Ukraine, We sure have a lot to talk about today. So welcome back to the podcast, Ben. Uh, It's a pleasure. Great to be with you, CTB. Uh, Always uh, enjoy our conversations. And uh, I think you're right. There is no shortage of things to cover, for for better or worse. And hey, let's start with painting the picture of of where we are. I'm I'm still sitting in the comfort of my own home, uh, but we are allowed out with a lot of freedom in New Zealand now, which is which is nice. And uh, I presume you're uh, you're somewhere up in, in Asia today. What's happening for you? Yep, I'm I'm in my office uh, up in Singapore, and uh, this week actually, we we we've uh, Singapore has moved to ending all vaccine differentiated measures, as they call it here. So, so I, I don't want to say how can I say I don't want to say COVID's over. Obviously, we are all having to learn to live with COVID as as part of life, and that's a fundamental change. But in terms of uh, restrictions and the ability to travel, uh, feels like we're nearly there. I have to say, in Singapore, which is uh, which is great because. I'm sure many of us have got family we haven't seen in a long time, colleagues we haven't seen in a long time. So I would say that's a, a critical focus and excitement uh, for the next six to 12 months is uh, is renewing those old uh, friendships and relationships more broadly. Absolutely. And um, well, you and your role as uh, Asia Pacific Chief Investment Strategist must be looking forward to places like Japan finally opening up uh, to uh, to visitors, and and I'm looking forward to going up there to see my partner's parents. So uh, it's it, it really is good to see even some of the conservative countries uh, like Japan that have taken such a cautious approach opening up again. It's it's got to be good for travel and and families reconnecting. Hey, well, let's uh, let's get started with it, and um, we're going to try and cover off all of those issues that I mentioned in my preamble. But let's start with fixed interest markets, and maybe some thoughts about the situation in UK, but in general, the tightening cycle going on around most of the world. And compared to thoughts we shared at the start of the year, well, for me in particular, the Fed's delivered more hikes than I expected if we'd been talking six months ago, and they plan to deliver even more. How's your thinking about how the Fed's evolved over the year been, Ben? Oh, look, I think all of us um, uh, have been reminded of the importance of humility. Maybe that's true for life. It's definitely true in markets. Uh, I I think the number of people who actually, I'm sure many will claim it, but I think the number of people who uh, 12 months ago, nine months ago, were expecting the Fed to be on the way to maybe four and a half or even five percent was very low, right? And uh, we were not one of them. I think uh, that's... uh, uh, clear, and I guess I should get that out uh, up front. Uh, the Fed's commitment—it's uh, almost like a whatever it takes mentality. To, to, if you remember, Draghi used that in a different context uh, nearly a decade ago. The Fed seems to be adopting a whatever it takes uh, mentality to bring inflation down, and you know we get it. That makes sense because inflation is really high. Uh, but the problem is, in life, nothing's for free. So yes, you can bring inflation down. 
Uh, you can be very hawkish, as the Fed are. They're not just talking hawkish. They're uh, they're walking the walk, right? So they continue to be hawkish. Uh, but we do worry uh, that there will be a cost. There will be a trade-off specifically into uh, growth uh, and then into unemployment. Uh, the Fed is uh, beginning to recognize the, uh, the downside risk, I guess, of their very hawkish approach. Uh, but for the moment, they are clearly sticking to their guns. Uh, and uh, t- almost totally focused on, on inflation. Uh, again, I understand that. We understand that. But we do think that is likely to create a, a fairly significant uh, growth downdraft. Uh, I think we're seeing the early signs of that uh, in the US, uh, Europe, and uh, and even more broadly. So, yeah, full disclosure, we were surprised as well. Uh, we think the Fed is serious about continuing to uh, uh, smash inflation because it's very high. Uh, but we are a bit anxious, a bit concerned about the uh, – uh, the negative implications uh, that could have for unemployment in particular, because sadly, uh, CTB in life, nothing's for free. So you can't just focus on inflation and uh, not uh, experience some of the trade-off that I've uh, mentioned there. Yeah, totally. And actually, your comment about um, lining up with Draghi doing whatever it takes, and, and that's what the Fed's saying will do whatever it takes. But for investors, this is quite a change, because in the past, they could be forgiven for thinking central banks will do whatever it takes to keep economic growth chugging along at a, at a, at a good rate. Um, whereas now their focus and what they're doing, whatever it takes, is different. They they don't mind that they smash growth right down to, to zero if it means that they've done what it takes to get inflation uh, under control. So it's quite interesting. Uh, and, and the first time in a very long time that central banks sort of haven't been on the side of investors who really want low interest rates and, uh, and strong economic growth. It's a slightly different mix for investors to get used to. Sure. No, no. I mean, this is a bit of a niche cultural reference, maybe. But whenever I hear Powell uh, speak, I'm reminded of uh, Clubber Lang from uh, from Rocky Three, who, when asked what's the prediction for the fight, replied pain. Uh, and, and I think that is something like uh, uh, Powell's framing at the moment. As I say, this isn't by accident, right? It's not like they don't know they're going to create this downdraft. Uh, Fed's already moved unemployment uh, forecast uh, in their formal uh, uh, forecast from something like uh, 3.5% today. Uh, the Fed's expecting 4.4% by the end of 2023. So they, you know, they 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 are clearly they're not uh, unaware of the growth downdraft they're going to create. Uh, but that's actually what they want, right? They actively want that. It's, I think this is really important to to get across to listeners here. For the moment, it isn't just that the Fed's okay with a growth downdraft. I think they actually want it because they perceive that as a price worth paying in order to keep the. Uh, uh, or get the inflation genie back in the bottle because the inflation genie is is definitely out. So I get that. We get that. But I, I do wonder if that's, you know, it's one thing talking about it in the theoretical because for the moment, the pain's actually quite limited, uh, not in financial markets. Financial markets have been hard. But in terms of Main Street, uh, real world economy, the U.S., uh, Employment picture actually remains pretty robust, even very robust. But I do think when that pain starts to come through, like actually and prospectively hundreds of thousands of people just in America, maybe more globally, are losing their jobs, uh, I think that does become a very different situation, very different backdrop for the Fed. uh, And our judgment is that they will eventually uh, pause and accept inflation, not at 8%, that's for sure, but maybe at you know 3%, uh, learn to live with slightly higher inflation rather than, uh, as I say, maybe throw uh, uh, an incremental few hundreds of thousands of Americans into unemployment. That's our judgment. Uh, but for the moment, first comes pain. 
Yeah, and, and we're seeing the sort of conflicting forces in long-term interest rates. And um, compared to a year ago, um, things like 10-year yields are up significantly. And, and that's been really challenging. Investors asking us how long the pain will continue within their bond portfolios. We're seeing yield curves inverting as people worry about the future Is there more to come or do you think bond markets are pricing something consistent with what you think central banks will do now and the way that growth and inflation will pan out over the next five to 10 years? So we think we're nearly there in terms of the, uh, let's talk about the US Treasury market, I guess, is the big one. Uh, I think you could read something similar for a lot of of DM uh, uh, developed markets, uh, central banks, but let's talk about the US. So we think 10-year yield can go a little bit higher. Right. We think we've had the big move. Obviously, the move over the last uh, six to nine months has been absolutely historic. So uh, uh, we think that won't happen again. Uh, we think the most, the bulk of the move has happened. But we do think uh, um, yields are likely to move a little bit higher uh, moving forward from here. So that keeps us, given yields move inversely to price, uh, as we think yields are going to uh, drift a bit higher over time, maybe grind would be the right word, grind a bit higher. Uh, price, there's still a certain amount of price risk. So, but with that being said, CTB, I think it's important to note we have now gone uh, outright overweight uh, investment grade credit in particular. So, so even though we still think there's a bit of a headwind in terms of the, the let's say, the overall policy. Uh, uh, rates can go a bit higher and so forth. Uh, we actually think credit is uh, in the round. Clearly, we need to be uh, uh, a little bit uh, careful picking our spots and so forth. But overall, we think credit is cheap enough or, or, or maybe thinking of it the other way, yields are high enough, particularly in investment grade credit. Uh, for the first time in maybe 10 years, you know, you've got yields of 4 5 6%, again, depending on exactly where you're looking. Uh, and we think that is worth the effort. Uh, so we are, even with our slightly uh, cautious overall risk stance, uh, the expectation for more pain and so forth, uh, we think credit, investment grade in particular, has cheapened sufficiently, yields are high enough that we actually think that's starting to look like uh, uh, value. So we've moved uh, uh, investment grade credits uh, overweight uh, because we think it's cheap enough. And that's, a, that's a, a reasonably big change of view from us over the last uh uh, six or nine months as we've gone through this uh, clearly uh, complete evolution, uh, even revolution in, in the uh, backdrop for, for yields, uh, as we're all aware. Yeah, and, and, and at a very, very basic level, the nice thing I see now is when someone buys a, uh, a bond or even something uh, more basic like a term deposit, actually at least they're starting to get a, uh, a yield or a, or, a, or a rate on that fixed interest investment that's reasonable. Rates just got ridiculously low for a few years there. So you really were just parking up your money uh, and not getting anything for it. But it's nice to see the running yield, if you like, uh, starting to improve as well. Let's move to the situation in the UK, which is slightly different and um the Bank of England found itself in the unexpected position of having to uh, get back in and support the gilt market after the uh, after the government's so-called mini budget. Do you think this is a sign of what other governments can expect if their fiscal plans uh, don't go too well? Uh, yes and no. So yes, I think if you lean into the markets, uh, there, there is more fragility. So so I think there is more risk for fiscal authorities than there has been uh, maybe over the last uh, many years where central bankers have been the big buyer of fiscal authorities' debt, of government debt. So clearly the change, uh, I mean, it's obvious, but it's profoundly important, the change from quantitative easing, the policy by which central banks buy 
uh, lots of uh, government bonds to quantitative tightening, uh, the process by which they sell those bonds or at least stop buying them, uh, that is night and day, right? That is just a huge change uh, of context for all of us, uh, but not least the fiscal authority. So I think, yes, I think fiscal authorities are going to have to be a little bit uh, uh, more careful uh, moving forward. Uh, and if uh, any fiscal authority, maybe the UK is an example of this, is a little bit uh, bold, uh, let's say, in a kind of yes, Prime Minister uh, usage of the word uh, bold there. Um, if they are a bit bold, there can be negative uh, repercussions, as we saw uh, a fairly uh, dramatic example of in the UK over the last uh, couple of weeks. Yeah, who knew that uh, unfunded tax cuts wouldn't go down well? Here in New Zealand, I pinch myself every now and then, and, and maybe that's something that just geeky economists do, uh, to, to think how normal things are. And the Reserve Bank here has gone from being an outlier uh, by halting its bond purchases well over a year ago and 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 hiking rates last year as well um, to being um, probably a bit enviable for other countries and um, and and things like inflation um, where the reserve banks at in terms of trying to uh, get on top of inflation uh, just just seems so much more normal even though it's still challenging um, when we compare it to the uh, to the likes of the UK or even or even the eurozone, where inflation's so much higher and those big trade offs uh, have got to be made between the government and the and the central bank still. Yeah, so, uh, look, just, just, um, just I, I feel like compelled. I, I think New Zealand, uh, RBNZ, deserves a lot of credit. I mean, it seems to me, I mean, it's not the first time, right? But, but, but this is a really clear example of the RBNZ starting as an outlier, I guess. I mean, a really extreme outlier of policy normalization. Uh, and now the world has followed, right? So, so I, I think uh, uh, there should be some uh, recognition of that. That seems to be something like a fact that uh, RBNZ was at least among the first. I'd need to check my exact record. Records, but but certainly among the first, if not the first, to move towards a, uh, I guess, a credible commitment to move policy back to something like orthodoxy uh, and the rest of the world followed. So uh, all kudos to you guys uh, in New Zealand. Yeah, it's a it's a reasonable place to be, and particularly as we roll it into summertime. But one of the one of the things which is a consequence here of the rapid rise in interest rates is a understandably uh, soft property market, and that's that is really important in New Zealand. Whereas um, maybe consumer confidence and 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 the wealth effect, if you like, in the US is is really driven by the share market. The housing market here is so much more important because that's where a lot of Kiwis have got the bulk of their money tied. Up. And Kiwis are very aware that the housing market is soft in an area of risk at the moment. But but turning it globally uh, and, and thinking about sort of listed uh, investment property, how are you feeling about the outlook for property investments over the year ahead within the context of portfolios and, and, and this environment we find ourselves in? So short term, uh, I think what you're seeing in New Zealand, uh, I think makes sense, uh, not just in New Zealand, but more broadly, if we're moving to a much higher interest rate environment, uh, mortgage payments adjust uh, accordingly, which means higher. Uh, and it seems reasonable that the price of the underlying asset, i.e. your house, uh, might be a little bit soft for some period of time. That, that I think, is going to be a story we see in uh, New Zealand, Australia, the UK, 
the U.S. in particular, these markets with uh, uh, more floating rate mortgages, uh, uh, as you likely know, CTB. The U.S., they really have like a long-term fixed uh, market. You can get a 30-year fixed mortgage. That's much rarer in other markets where, you know, even people who say they're on a fixed mortgage, that probably means two years, which isn't that long in the scheme of things, right? So I think everyone or many, many of us are having to adjust to uh, higher mortgage payments, and uh, that is crimping. Uh, again, that's by design, right? Central bankers are doing this to, to us on purpose to bring uh, uh, inflation down and, and take a little bit of the fun, uh, the punch bowl away from the party, I guess, is uh, is what's happening. So so a little bit of softness, I think, stands to, to reason. Now, with that being said, given I said earlier that ultimately we think uh, our judgment at the BlackRock Investment Institute is that uh, the Fed and other central banks are going to have to live with inflation uh, a bit higher not eight, that's for sure. Maybe three is the new two, something like this. But what that means is uh, on the more, uh, let's say, strategic horizon, and obviously a house is not something you're, uh, or at least I'm not trading it out of on a, on a daily or weekly basis, right? This is the ultimate, maybe long-term uh, asset for most of us. Uh, we do think uh, inflation uh, resilience within the portfolio, obviously that's always important, but it feels like it's going to be pretty top of the list, near the top of the list of uh, important things when we think about portfolio construction. So what does that mean? It means real assets. Infl it means assets that can be uh, keep up with inflation or, or maybe even outperform inflation. Uh, and you can take that thought in any different number of directions, not least uh, equities, by the way, you know, real assets. But I think uh, clearly for many of us, uh, if it's the case, this is our view that inflation is going to persist for, for years to come, uh, again, not at eight, but maybe at higher levels than we've all got used to, then having more thought and more allocation to inflation-resilient uh, uh, assets, uh, critically and clearly one's own uh, home, we think uh, is is prudent, right? Not just like a sensible, but actually a, a prudent. So sorry for a slightly nuanced answer, CCB. Short term, uh, there is a little bit of a headwind. There's just no question about it for all the reasons we've talked about. But I, I don't think people should, uh, how can I say, overreact or lose their, their overall perspective on the importance of uh, property, I guess, broadly. Uh, for many people, that's their own home uh, within the portfolio, uh, as I say, as we maybe stay within a slightly higher inflation environment for years or even even decades to come. One of the conversations uh, that, that does come up, and it, it won't be one we solve here, but certainly one that some uh, investors might like to take up with an advisor, is inflation-proofing your portfolio, your investment strategy. Now, term deposit rates, for example, have have, have come back up quite nicely here from around 1% to around 4%, which is, which is good and, until you factor in that, hey, well, maybe inflation's going to be running at a lot higher rates over the next five years than it has certainly in the preceding five years. And by the time you take tax and inflation into it, you really are just treading water even with these higher rates we've got now. So it's a, it's a really interesting one for investors to, to think about. One of the comments you made then was about um, the, the duration that people can fix at and, and, and a really interesting contrast that I've been thinking about as a New Zealand economist that's worked a lot in Australia is the difference between our two economies. And if the Reserve Bank was an outlier going into this tightening cycle, the Reserve Bank of Australia, for now at least, is an outlier and going, hey, well, we're, we're going to slow down our pace of tightening. They're the first uh, that, that I've thought, wow, okay, I wasn't expecting that, but, but here we are. But Australia does have a very high proportion of their mortgages floating 
um, compared to other parts of the world that I've studied. And, and perhaps that's a factor there that these higher interest rates have just got traction in Aussie quicker than other places where it takes a long time to flow through. I, I, just to pick that up, I think that's true and important. So I'm just going to agree uh, with you here. I, th- I think there are different fragilities, right? So different economies are different. Uh, the UK had, had a kind of uh, specific acute example of uh, uh, the new fragility, I guess, uh, whereby the central bank is uh, in the round moved to selling uh, government bonds rather than buying them. So that's a different situation. And yes, the individual uh, uh, mortgage. I mean, it really is straightforward given the importance of mortgages to all of us or many of us. Uh, that different shape of the uh, the product, right? The mortgage product in Australia versus the US is is a profound difference. I would say, sorry to be a, I don't want to be a total kind of uh, wet blanket or uh, just bearer of bad news in this uh, in this uh, uh, cast. But what that means, I think, is it's another reason the Fed's going to continue to go for it, right? Because they, uh, with the uh, the reality of having a thirty year fix. Uh, not everyone, but many people in America would have seen, you know, record low thirty-year uh, mortgage rates as a great opportunity to refinance. So there was an unusually large refinancing at the right time. So what that means is uh, those people are not invulnerable, clearly, but the Fed might have to try even harder uh, to create the uh, the pain, the growth downdraft that they want. Uh, given uh, uh, many Americans very uh, sensibly took advantage of the deep uh, capital markets and, and the product that facilitates, uh, namely 30-year uh, mortgages. So I just, sorry, just to jump in on that, but I think that is so important to recognize different economies have different fragilities, as it were. Uh, and weirdly, the US uh, resilience, uh, a lot of Americans having this 30-year fix and therefore not being as directly impacted by uh, short-term rise in interest rates might mean the Fed has to go even harder to to get to them, right, or to get to the economy more broadly, which is maybe counterintuitive, but I think does fit given that uh, it's kind of a micro point, the shape of the mortgage market, but I think it does have important macro implications, uh, as I think you were speaking to, CTB. Yeah, yeah, to build on the uh, the Draghi theme and, the, and, and wrap up that bit is uh, whatever it takes uh, does look different in, in various economies, depending on what shape and 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 how you're um how you're borrowing uh, functions for folk in the economy. Hey, now we can't really get through a podcast without talking a bit about COVID and in, in detail. And uh, given that you're in, up in Asia, it'd be really insightful to uh, to hear what you're seeing and expecting in Asia in terms of economies opening up, particularly with the obvious examples um, like uh, Japan that's about to reopen or very much still work in progress when it comes to China. How do you see these various stages of reopening impacting overall economic activity and and investment markets in in Asia over the next uh, six or 12 months? So let me come to China in a couple of paragraphs, because I think that is, uh, as so often the case with China, it is sui generis, right? It's kind of its own thing. So let me speak broadly, and then I'll dial in on China. Uh, bear with me, I will get there. But in, in the round, it's great, right? I mean, so we talked about in the uh, uh, the friendly opening, this is going to allow many of us to see family, friends, colleagues. Uh, so that's kind of awesome. Uh, that's number one. Number two, uh, a lot of the current inflation is being caused by problems of supply chains. Uh, and that isn't just covid it's geopolitics, many other issues, but at least some of it's COVID. So the normalization of supply chains, which is already you know advanced to some degree, should continue. And given for us, a lot of the inflation has been caused by supply bottlenecks. Uh, that should be very useful, actually. It's seeing some of the heat uh, that we're currently seeing inflation come out. So one, it's kind of awesome that we can see our, our family. Two, 
uh, I guess, uh, less uh, romantically, more prosaically, but importantly, it should take uh, some of the heat out of inflation uh, again, because we see the key cause driving inflation in, in America and elsewhere as being as being supply side uh, factors. So, yeah, it should be. Um, it seems like it's happening. Seems like we've got to a stage. Uh, there's uh, some expectation. Uh, clearly, we don't know, but there's some expectation that the World Health Organization may formally uh, change uh, their. Uh, um, I can't think of the right uh, word to use it, but how they describe the uh, COVID situation, they might formally change it from pandemic to endemic. Uh, and, you know, I guess that will be the, the formal notice that the world is moving uh, more and more to live with COVID as we're talking to here. So in the round, I think it's it's very encouraging, specific for investments, uh, which is what we're really focused on here. It should help the inflation uh, uh, situation somewhat. So that's the, the, the where we would come in. Now, China, um, again, uh, it's its own thing. So I think we're all watching and waiting with great interest. Uh, there's an important event in, in China over the next uh, week or two where we may or may not, right? It's hard for us to second guess what's going to go on at the highest level of China politics. But I do think it's worth uh, listeners being aware that there is a big event in China over the next uh, uh, couple of weeks, uh, the National Party Congress. Uh, this is a it's kind of everything in one. You get economic, political, and other news. Uh, for CTB's question, there is some chance that you may get, uh, I'm being as, uh, as uh, how can I say, hedged as I can, because clearly, just to stress, we don't know, right? But there is at least some chance that this would be an opportunity for China authorities to signal, if not a loosening, at least a plan towards a loosening, uh, which would be very significant. So again, sorry to be really clear here. That's not a forecast. We just we just have no insight as to what's going on at the upper echelon of uh, China politics uh, uh, at our end. But I would say it's a big event, and there is at least some chance we get a signal. Uh, and clearly, CTB, if we got that signal, it would be very important for China. Uh, but but not just for China, right? China's the world's second largest economy. It would be a huge deal for. Uh, for the region and even for the global economy, uh, given the heft, the scale, the importance of uh, of China. So again, not a forecast, but very much a watch this space uh, over the next couple of weeks to see if we do get even a, a hint of that, I think would be important for us uh, us to note. In our part of the world, China is so incredibly important. It's the um, biggest trading partner for Australia, for New Zealand. And so, so much of our activity um, is influenced by by China's growth, and there and there are concerns here for some of our key exports that that go to China that these this protracted slowdown will just keep on weighing on demand for uh, for products. You know, forestry and and dairy are a good example. Um, so um, we'll be we'll be watching that carefully. One more, if I may, just because I think this is quite interesting and again, a little bit counterintuitive, that there, there's a school of thought, which is, weirdly, it might be the Western slowdown, or all, all that uh, Club Lang stuff I talked about earlier, that could induce uh, China to loosen up a little bit. Because, you know, China's had a, a relatively, of course, with the ongoing uh, hard-to-predict lockdowns, uh, understandably, people in China are not feeling that confident, right? You don't want to go too far afield for your travels if, if you feel you might get locked down and so on. So that's been the, uh, the challenge, let's say, euphemistically on. Sure. But China, the engine of the economy that's been 
I mean, not just okay, but act, but booming is the export sector. So, you know, COVID, mm. uh, everyone in the West uh, stuck at home. Let's buy a new PC. Let's buy a new desk. I'm, I've got a sore back. I need a st- whatever, like stuff. And it turns out China still makes a, a lot of the stuff, right? So we've had an absolute boom in goods demand, which is the same thing as saying in China exports, right? So that's been the situation for the last uh, year or two. And that's obviously been a, a really uh, big buffer, uh, 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 you know, a massive help for China, even as they've gone through a, a significant uh, self-induced uh, COVID restrictions-led uh, slowdown. So if if we do see this pain that I'm talking about uh, from the West, which again, we think is likely, that's a big deal for China that suddenly their export sector looks a bit less rosy uh, and that would make the overall economic situation uh, worse. So uh, again, we don't have clarity, but uh, I think it stands to reason that if that's the case, it would encourage, right? It would give a slightly more of an incentive for for China authorities uh, to somewhat loosen. That there's not, I, I think it's very unlikely that there will be just a like a big bang opening, a big bang loosening of, uh, of COVID controls, but at least any step in that direction Again, important, significant for 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 all of us, and, and yeah, as I say, slightly weirdly, counterintuitively, it could be the global or Western slowdown that we're seeing that actually gives uh, China authorities a little bit of the hurry up in terms of small steps in that direction. It'd be a good thing to see, and particularly for New Zealand, it makes a big uh, difference where it's the consumption demand within China is so important, more so than the investment side of things, particularly investments and in, uh, infrastructure that's been so important for Australia and their uh, commodity boom that we've, we've seen over the past 20 years. And hey, we, we haven't touched on Europe or and the Ukraine developments uh, yet. We chatted about this at the start of the year and both of us profess not to be experts on all the uh, mechanisms that go on in, in, in Russia, but here we are six months later and the conflict just um, doesn't seem to be improving. How are you factoring the whole situation into your thinking about European economies and, and, and investments? Uh, it's relevant and, and not good, right? I mean, again, I'm no military expert, so I just I, I don't feel I have the uh, capability to talk too much about the thing itself. But the implications are are, are fairly straightforward. Uh, it's negative for for Europe's uh, economic uh, situation. So I, I think that's on the one hand sort of blindingly obvious, but it's still true and uh, and important. So we are, are still a little bit uh, of the view that European growth forecasts are probably a bit too high. I need to come down a little bit. Uh, the European Central Bank, uh, maybe not with the enthusiasm of the Fed, but they are still, you know, minded to move a little bit more uh, hawkish. So there's no kind of uh, no free lunch from the central bankers either. So you've got the energy uh, crisis or energy problem, I guess, uh, uh, that Europe is still uh, trying to work out how they deal with this. Uh, a broad growth, uh, related growth, uh, slowdown. Uh, the central bank uh, following the global uh, direction of travel, at least, uh, as I mentioned, maybe not as enthusiastically, but nonetheless, it's it's incrementally less helpful. So in the round, uh, we still think uh, uh, Europe has got uh, questions to answer, I suppose. So we're a little bit underweight to uh, Europe equities. Um, and, uh, you know, clearly, uh, we're in a strange situation where even in uh, 2022 and dealing with, you know, one of the world's most advanced economies, uh, the weather will be important, right? It feels like this is from uh, prehistoric or thousands of years ago, but a cold winter in Europe would be 
extremely uh, uh, challenging given the energy uh, problems which Europe is already confronting. Uh, a warm winter would be very different. So it's just hard for me as an investment expert to take a strong view on the weather. But I but I think it's worth noting this just in terms of the, uh, uh, how can I say, the fragility, I suppose, uh, Europe is, is, is trying to manage and, and clearly making strides to uh, uh, to adjust to, but but with the, the war still uh, um, um, uh, taking place, occurring, the implications, the negative implications for Europe, I think, are uh, unfortunately are still ongoing. So you know, we're watching very carefully. Valuations have adjusted accordingly, but again, CTB, our, our our main point would be we think growth is likely to continue to to disappoint, facing facing these uh, overlapping headwinds of uh, energy price are very high. Uh, and the central bank, uh, I guess, looking to control that by bringing demand down, which makes sense, I suppose, but but is clearly another headwind for for uh, for, for growth in in Europe, which we don't think is yet fully uh, fully priced into uh, to European equity markets. It's just such a uh, tough mix, and uh, I uh, empathise with you uh, with uh, watching the weather in New Zealand. It's so important, and and I always uh, because so many of our um, so much of our GDP uh, relates to agricultural products, and so I always uh, think, "Hey, we're only we're only a bad drought away from having a recession." And uh, the the joke here is that economists' uh, jobs are to make weather forecasters look good. I don't know. I don't know which. I don't know which craft is more reliable. But anyway, we'll. Uh, I, I agree with you that uh, that it's a tough time to head into winter with energy prices this high in in Europe. Last but not least, um, it's obviously uh, this backdrop uh, isn't encouraging for share markets around the world. Um, the extent of the decline certainly um, surprised me, having um, had a had a pretty good recovery last year from the um, 2020 drop. And how about you? And what are your things that you're going to be looking at as we go through this period where inevitably investors are going to be asking us, what things are you looking at to give you confidence that things might be uh, turning around or, or, or supportive? There's two, I mean, there's a million, obviously, CTB, as you understand, but there's two big ones that are really on uh, my mind. Uh, one we've spoken to, which is any let's use the P word, pivot from China vis-a-vis COVID policies, right? And as I say, I don't think you need or are likely to get a kind of big bang where they suddenly say, hey, we're going to open everything up on a specific date. But I think given how depressed sentiment and valuations are in and around uh, the China complex, and, and clearly that has implications for global markets, uh, given the heft of China, uh, that's worth paying attention to. Even a, a signal of a plan to begin opening, I think, would be significant and uh, and broadly positive for uh, uh, for risk, including New Zealand, as you uh, as you observe CTP. So that would be number one. Number two, in the global uh, space, um, we need to see inflation. Uh, not just coming down, but I think becoming a little bit more forecastable. The problem I think we've all had or markets have had is it isn't just that inflation uh, has been very high. It's that so people few it, uh, so people, so few people saw it coming and persisting. So we've all been, I guess, uh, uh, how can I say, whipsawed around and feel extremely uncertain about uh, the macroeconomic environment. So if uncertainty is higher, which it is because of uh, because of that, uh, what that should lead to and has led to is higher 
uh, risk premium, which is to say markets have gone down. So I think you know these are related points, but they're not quite the same thing. So I'm trying to tease out that nuance here. Uh, clearly, we'd like to see inflation uh, look like it's peaked out and start to come down. That would be great. Uh, and also for the market to get a, a feel that it's got a better handle on what are the drivers of inflation, where inflation is going to be in two, three, four months' time. Because clearly, uh, a lot of us, as I mentioned right at the start, have been humbled uh, around that over the last 12 or 18 months. So, so again, it isn't just inflation coming down. Very important, though, that is. It's the market getting a sense of uh, maybe there is a different inflation environment, but we're starting to understand it now, starting to be able to prepare position more accordingly. Uh, and that should uh, lead to a slightly uh, more confident market uh, uh, in time. So we're not there yet, but those would be two, I think, very important uh, positive changes, one from the East, one from the West, uh, which would help uh, would help portfolios and risk uh, risk very broadly. Yeah, I think those are really good things for investors to be able to focus on. And, and we do get asked a lot of questions about what should I be thinking at times like this. So, so to, to think about key events uh, and developments in the world is important. And I always remind investors to keep an eye on um, earnings season. When we Went through uh, the last uh, period here, where most of the top um, 50 companies reported. Um, the general comments from analysts and and people like myself was, "Oh, that wasn't as bad as I thought." Or actually, there were some some nice surprises in there. And it's always good to see that companies uh, actually do work out ways to go forward here. They don't give up. They make decent business plans. So in that vein, I'm looking forward to the earnings season in the States just to see how various companies are faring. And there'll be some bad stories in there, but there'll be some good ones too, I'm, I'm sure. I think uh, there's no way of sugarcoating it. We are in for a, um, a period of uncertainty while some of these things play out. Uh, and I think for investors, just sticking with their goals, keeping close to their advisors so that they're aware of what's happening and how it's impacting their investments is such an important thing for the rest of the year. So, hey, Ben, I, I really appreciate, as always, do your, your, your time and your insights. And thank you so much for being on this call. It's a pleasure. Always great to be with you, CTB. You're, you're so good at, uh, uh, at getting, I think, some great insights and great conversations. So I really appreciate the opportunity to be with you uh, and the listeners today. Thanks very much, Ben. And we'll, uh, we'll, we'll talk again soon, I'm sure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the ASB Investment Podcast. If you have any thoughts on today's episode, or if there's anything you'd like us to discuss on a future show, please get in touch at podcasts at asb.co.nz. BlackRock Investment Management Australia Limited is a wholly owned subsidiary of BlackRock Incorporated. BlackRock Incorporated is based in the US and is a leading global provider of investment management services with over $8.5 trillion US in assets under management as at the 30th of June, 2022.